Hello, everybody. Yes, it's me, John Bridges, of Guild Financial Advisory, Masters of Finance. And I have a very, very special guest for you this week. It is the first time I've had in the recording studio a lady. As those of you who have followed my series, you will know of the dozen or so I've done thus far, it's all been men. I'm proud to welcome to the studio Nemony Wynne-Evans. Nemony, good morning to you and welcome. Good morning, John. Thank you. Nemony is a rather special lady. We will be talking about her career, past, current and hopefully future in a minute. I want to reflect for a moment though, on an aspect of my own city career. When I started in 1959, it was in a bank which had one other lady employee out of a dozen or so men. Three years later, I left the bank and went and joined a stockbroking firm. They had one or two lady employees, but that was all. Shortly after that, on my arrival, I went and spent some time working on the floor of the stock exchange where there were no ladies at all. And when I inquired the reason why, I was told ah, rather fiercely by the senior partner of the firm I was with, there are no ladies' lavatories. I understood that for a while until, of course, I noticed that there was a visitor's gallery staffed entirely by young women. And then the Stock Exchange building was pulled down and a new one built, and that was properly equipped. And in the early 70s, women were allowed into the Stock Exchange as members equal with all the men. But then followed, in my experience, a gradual drift of women into other city jobs, notably lawyers and accountancy and so on and so on. But the notion of women being involved in running companies was something that few of us were aware of until this century and the early noughties when one or two appeared. And in due course, Nemini, my guest for today, was amongst them. Now, here we are 23 years into the century and there are quite a lot about. Nemini, why did it take such a long time for women to be accepted as, as directors of serious companies? I think that's a good question. I mean, I think when I began my career in the mid-90s, there was certainly no shortage of female graduates. But when I went into the professional services, women were certainly in the minority. They were very much in the minority at more senior levels. And I suppose it has taken some time for you know those cohorts of uh, female graduates uh, like myself who were coming in to uh, work their way through up to the upper edge. I think there have been, you know, some not so much pockets of resistance. I think women have been successful in in some areas more than others. But I think it ha it has taken time. I don't think it's been through any particular lack of willingness uh, on the part of male counterparts. I think some of the uh, issues have been more more sort of deep rooted um, around, for example, the difficulty that some women have in 
in uh, combining other wider family responsibilities with the amounts of, uh, sort of discretionary time and effort that their male counterparts have often had more at their disposal. Um, and I think, for example, networking has always been very important to you know, career progression, whether male or female. But there can be more of a challenge if uh, you have uh, other responsibilities beyond your working life and therefore less discretionary time to be able to put into that networking. So I don't think it's been through a matter of, of lack of willingness, but, uh, but it is taking time. And I think it's very interesting to look at sort of the makeup that we see now in boardrooms today. Organisations such as Women on Boards are, are doing a lot to champion the progress that's been rightly made and is now being celebrated in seeing more women entering the boardroom as uh, non-executive directors. But we are still seeing it very difficult for women to break into that sort of executive director level. And indeed, you know, those that are are there are, are very visible. And, you know, there need to be more women coming through, you know, at those executive levels. But there are a, a whole combination of factors which make these things not easy to, to either break down or tackle in one go. So it's taken time. I think we will achieve ultimately a position of greater parity. I very much hope, but it has taken time. One of the problems must be that women have the problem which men don't have, and that is childcare, for which they are almost totally responsible. And it's the availability of childcare to give them the time to have these responsibilities. Um, that is extremely difficult. What can be done to, to change that or make it better? Well, I think part of it is a mindset change. And that mindset change is about understanding that responsibility for families does not and should not lie with the mother alone. And I do think there is a greater acceptance now. Again, it's still slow, but there is a, an, an increasing acceptance amongst many fathers that actually childcare is equally as much their responsibility uh, for their own progeny as it is for the mothers. And uh, now we're starting to see more companies introduce not just flexible working, but also paid paternity leave. The ability for two working parents to uh, share those responsibilities is greater than it has been, but I still think there's a lot of stigma. And I don't think there are many men who uh, would willingly step out of the workplace for six, nine, 12 months, maybe even longer, without fearing for their career progression, as women have always done and, and still do. So I do think it's taking a shift in mindset. I mean, we could go on for a long time about, you know, government approach towards childcare policies, etc., etc. But a lot of it is to do with a mindset shift, that the responsibility for looking after children is very much a shared family responsibility. And so men need to step up and do their part. Thank you, Nemini, for making that point about it being a mindset problem. What can we do to help young men in this mindset problem they have to understand it is their responsibility as well as the, the woman's for, for, for childcare? So I think a lot of it does come down to employers embracing the idea of family-friendly policies and about making it easier for men to step up and uh, do their part when it comes to taking on those caring responsibilities. Some of that is to do with ensuring that there is support in place for new fathers. But it also, I think it's a leadership issue in that I think there's a lot that can be done by today's senior leaders, some of whom may 
have children that are, are older than, you know, that difficult naught to five age range, but who can demonstrate through their own actions to members of their workforce that it's entirely acceptable to accommodate their uh, childcare responsibilities alongside their working lives. And I do think that, uh, you know, COVID and the shift to flexible working made a lot of men appreciate the input that they could have at home and the benefit that their families received from having them more present. And uh, I'm hoping that even as uh, we seem to be trending back into the workplace and working from home less, that some of those better habits, as it were, that many working men got themselves into in terms of uh, making themselves more available for their families will continue. Is there something here that the schools could be doing? I mean, at the minute, schools seem to, to bring up girls on the basis that they're going to be mothers and cooks and boys on the basis that they're going to go out and play football. And there is a huge difference between the two. Could it be handled differently by the schools? I don't think I see that at all, actually. I see equal encouragement from uh, schools towards both boys and girls around opportunities, around professions. So I'm, I'm not quite sure I see that. But do I think it's a good idea for children to see both parents involved in childcare? Yes, absolutely I do. And uh, you know, today's leaders and today's parents need to be aware of what they are modelling as far as their own children are concerned and how their own children may choose to manage their working and family lives when they themselves grow up. Thank you. Nemi, let's, let's talk a little bit about your own career. You get uh, four or five different jobs in the last count that I did. Tell us a little about the five activities in which you are involved. That's right. I am a uh, portfolio non-executive director and chair on a number of company boards. And I currently hold five positions, four of which are within financial services and uh, one in the energy sector. So they are all quite different, although they do have some uh, commonalities, some common themes that run through them. So in no particular order, I chair the board of a uh, medium-sized mutual insurer called the Shepherds Friendly Society. We do savings and and uh, income protection products. I'm also on the board of a building society, the Hinkley and Rugby Building Society, based in Leicestershire and Warwickshire, one of the top 20 building societies uh, by assets, where I am due to be stepping up to chair the board at the end of this year. Still in financial services, I am on the board of a venture capital trust of ECT, which is fully listed, and that's within the Gresham House stable. So the four Mobius VCTs that Gresham House run are consistently in the top performers year on year in terms of return on investment to our shareholders. And I joined the board of one of those VCTs relatively recently where I chair the audit committee. And I also work as a board advisor at a boutique wealth management firm by the name of Sorbus Partners LLP, where we provide discretionary investment management and wealth planning to a small number of uh, high net worth families and uh, individuals. And then moving away from the financial services sector, I sit on the board of an AIM company in the energy sector called Good Energy Group, where I chair the Audit and Risk Committee. Very interesting company. It's been going for 20 years or so. Historically been a renewable electricity 
supplier. It started back in the day where, you know, renewable energy was practically non-existent in this country. Um, of course, now we see an increasing proportion of renewable energy within our daily electricity generation mix. We are moving increasingly into the energy services sector, where we are now looking to help more than a million individuals and businesses cut their carbon emissions through supplying them with a variety of um, products and services in the energy sector. Now, this is fairly unusual for a young woman to have what is known as a portfolio career. It happens rather more with old men like me who sort of have a, a list of non-exec directorships to sort of supplement the retiring income. You have made a genuine career out of this. How has this opportunity come about for you? So I think the world of the non-executive director has changed significantly. And it's certainly changed in the 10 or so years since I went down the uh, portfolio career route. So when I first started looking to go down on the non-executive angle, this was... Um, Fairly soon after the Davis report that came out in 2010, which uh, highlighted the dearth of women and indeed diversity in general in the boardroom. So uh, I was very much looking to see if I could uh, ride on that wave and capitalise on an increased interest in getting more women into the boardroom. But you're right that uh, we've also seen over the same period is, uh, I would say, a lowering in the average age of the non-executive director. And so you're now seeing more full-time executives taking on a non-executive position uh, alongside their executive role. But you're also seeing more people like me who are choosing to go down this portfolio route relatively early. And when I say relatively early, you're right. You know, it used to be the model that uh, at the end of one's executive career, uh, possibly at the point of retirement, that's when a former executive director would seek one or possibly two non-executive director positions, uh, effectively to keep their hand in, potentially to supplement their retirement income in those early years. And that was very much the typical sort of mode of a non-executive director. If you look at non-executive directors now, on average, as I say, they are much younger. You are now starting to see people taking on non-executive director roles in their 30s, let alone their 40s. And there are more people around like me who are looking to do this on a full-time basis. And I think that reflects the increasing expectation on non-executive directors and the role that they play. Play. It was very interesting, for example, in reflecting after the banking crisis, many people were thinking, well, where, the, where were the non-executive directors of these banks in those late 2000s where risk positions were, were being taken? And what questions were being asked? What were the non-executive directors actually doing? And not just in the financial services, I think it also goes broader than that. There are much greater expectations of non-executives than there were previously. And uh, in looking to uh, meet those expectations, I think that the role of the non-executive has become increasingly professionalised. It's no longer something that you can consider doing on a part-time basis. It's something which you really need to dedicate yourself to, to ensure that you are not only serving the board to the best of your ability, but you're also doing so to the extent that, that you are expected to by you know, the broader corporate community, by investors, by regulators, and indeed by companies themselves. So the nature of the role has changed, and because the nature of the role has changed, the nature of the people that you see in the role has changed as well. And that's come about over the last 10 years. And two questions for you. What has been the effect of having younger 
non-exec directors and what has been the effect particularly of having young women non-exec directors joining these boards. So increased diversity in the boardroom makes every member of the board in that boardroom think very carefully about uh, how they are communicating. I certainly do. So when I'm looking to communicate in the boardroom, I'm thinking quite carefully, not about each of my fellow directors in terms of, well, are they old or young? Are they male or female? But more to do with the fact that because we now have more diverse boardrooms, we have more diverse communication styles. So what that means is that we might have, you know, a little bit less table thumping than perhaps we might have done, where typically you might have had a boardroom that was uh, less diverse and made up, say, of only a single type of director, maybe male, maybe of a particular age cohort. Now with increased diversity, I think everyone's thinking very carefully about how to ensure that we communicate with each other, how we get the best out of each other, and ultimately how we pull together to do the best job that we can for the company that we're serving. So I think it makes everyone feel more reflective. Everyone has to be more reflective and more courteous and accommodating to different communication styles. And I think that can only be a good thing because the point about greater diversity in the boardroom is that increased diversity of thought, and that isn't to do with particularly increased diversity of genders or of races, but in general, increased diversity of thought can only lead to a richer discussion and a richer discussion which explores issues from more angles than perhaps they might have been looked for previously can only lead to a better outcome for a company. It means that you are less liable to fall into groupthink. Sometimes it means that you might have to spend longer on an issue, exploring it from more angles than perhaps might have been the case previously. But, but it's about accommodating those different communication styles that diversity of thought and uh, trying to ensure that you're getting, as a result, the best outcome that you can for the company. Do I recall that Good Energy was founded, as you tell us, 20 years ago, actually by a woman? It was indeed. Yes, that's right. And actually, there is a real dearth of, of uh, senior women in the energy sector. Again, because there aren't many, those that are there are very high profile. But there is an increasing recognition that actually the energy sector does need more women at senior echelons. There's a very interesting lady called Emma Pinchback, who heads up Energy UK, the industry body. And she is another example of a senior leader, sort of few and far between in the sector. But we do need more. Hopefully, more will be coming through. Right, and talking of more will be coming through, um, are there more positions coming through as far as you're concerned, Emily? For instance, if I may lead you, uh, I, I note that there's not one bank amongst your portfolio. Could one of those be on the cards? Well, possibly. As is the nature of being a portfolio non-executive director, I'm, I'm always interested in looking at uh, new opportunities. There are potentially some interesting sectors that I would really like to get involved in, possibly banking. Um, I have to say I do really enjoy being a director of an AIM company. A lot of my career was spent in the smaller company public markets. There's something about the cut and thrust of the PLC world that I do uh, find very stimulating. So, you know, potentially if I could uh, assist in the boardroom of other AIM or Aquis listed companies, then potentially that also might be of interest. What would you say to women who are listening to this podcast, who, let's imagine, a young graduate, she's into a decent university, decent college, got a decent degree, and she's considering her future. What would you say to her about moving into the area of corporate development? So 
I mean, I think there really is no barrier today to an ambitious female graduate who wants to plot their career in whatever field is of their interest. I think that anyone's career is always a, a matter of a sort of combination of a, a bit of planning, a bit of judgment, a bit of luck, a bit of sort of saying yes to opportunities along the way and seeing where where they lead to. I do think that if I were to give any advice for what it's worth, I do think the importance of building that network is really key because I think it's something that many women neglect, that they believe that by sheer effort and sheer hard work, their efforts will be recognised and they will rise effortlessly up through the ranks and that's not really the way it works. That to be able to uh, plan a career, and I think this is actually the case in any sector that you're in, right across from civil service to academia to the sectors that I know, I think the importance of your network is absolutely paramount. And I have to say I've never been particularly selective about where that network may come from. I'm just interested in talking to people. And over the years I've built a network that is full of all sorts of people in all sorts of areas, you know, some of them senior, some of them junior but it does mean that if ever I'm wrangling with a particular issue or I'd like to pick up the phone to, to somebody to get some advice on something or I can usually think of somebody in my network who'll be able to help and I do think that building that network is really important because once you get to a certain level of seniority the chances are that your future career positions be it in the boardroom or otherwise will probably come through people that you know that's just the way it works yes it's certainly the case that there is a much greater effort being made to increase diversity into uh, senior levels of all organisations uh, through open recruitment, through trying to uh, sort of increase the funnel in terms of trying to, you know, pull people in and, and make those senior echelons more diverse. But ultimately, it does help if you have managed to meet some interesting people along the way who might think of you or, or who you might be able to call on. And it's too easy to neglect that aspect of your career, particularly if, for example, you're going through a period of childcare responsibilities where you just have less discretionary effort to put into, into that networking. But I do think that networking is incredibly important. Something that I will do quite regularly is turn up to events or turn up to conferences where I don't necessarily know anybody, but I turn up and see who I can meet, see if I can uh, have a chat with some senior people, see if I can expand my network further again. It always helps to know as many people as possible. That is a very, very, very interesting lesson you've just given us. Uh, networking falls naturally to some people, not naturally to a great many others, but it is worth putting the effort in, making the effort and making it work for you. And it's a question of getting out there and doing it. Is that right? It really is. And even if you don't much like networking, it's worth getting out and making the effort. You never know who you might meet. What happens next in your life? Are you looking specific opportunities? Or have you a, a, an idea of sort of thing you'd like to be doing that you're not doing at the moment? One of the interesting things about, about the, the career path that I have chosen, which was to go down this sort of portfolio plural route, relatively early on in my career is that it's something which I hope to be doing for a very long time to come. I mean, I can easily see myself managing a, a portfolio of board positions for another 20 years. I very much hope that's the case. And I really enjoy the, the variety uh, of people that I get to work with and the challenge of 
combining a, a number of different roles, um, being able to see those commonalities, being able to see those common themes, picking up what I see in one boardroom and taking it into another. I find that very stimulating. It's obviously a very different way of working from being in a full-time senior executive position. Hugely different. But it does mean that I hope that it will be through a process of, of either natural rotation where uh, I reach uh, you know, the maximum number of years that I can serve on a particular board or you know, positions can always come to an end for, you know, for whatever reason, a whole combination of things, that there will and should be a churn of the roles that I am doing such that I can stay fresh, that I can continue to have fresh and relevant input into the roles that I'm doing. Because I think that uh, you know, the, the fresher and more current I am, the more relevant I can be to the boards that I am serving. So I expect that there will be a, you know, a natural churn over time. I imagine in five years' time, I may not be in any of the boards that I'm on now. In 10 years' time, I could be on a completely different set of boards. But I do hope that I'll be able to keep myself fresh, keep myself interested and make sure that I can keep serving the boards that I serve with as fresh and as relevant a perspective as possible. Nemina, thank you for that. This has been a very real privilege today to listen to you. You are the first woman guest, as you know, who I've had in these studios. The conversation has gone on a line which has been quite different from that which I originally envisaged it would. You have given all members of the audience something to think about, both women and men. Thank you very much for coming here today. And I hope that one day we might invite you back into the studio to tell us how you're getting on. It's been my pleasure, John. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. This content is issued by Guild Financial Advisory Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conducts Authority for designated investment business and is a member of the Aquis Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decision regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Guild Financial Advisory. Please note that participants within this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. <laughs>